Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect individual identities. Let's open the file on Pablo and the principal. Okay, Julie, this was your case, so why don't you give us the facts about Pablo? Sure thing. So Pablo was a seventh grade young man um, who had an anxiety disorder, and he had an IEP, an individualized program, individualized education program that met his unique needs for his anxiety disorder under the category of emotional disturbance, which for the purposes of folks who um, are not familiar with that term is a most unfortunate term yeah. um, that the IDEA, the Individuals with Disability, um, Disability Act uses. Uh, Education Act uses. Um, And let me just, you know, tell you what it is. An emotional disturbance, um, it means a condition exhibiting one or more of the following characteristics over a long period of time and to a marked degree that adversely affects a child's educational performance in one or more of the following areas. It could be the inability to learn that cannot be explained by intellectual, sensory, or health factors. It might be the uh, the, the inability to maintain satisfactory or interpersonal relationships with peers and teachers. It could be the inappropriate types of behaviors or feelings under normal circumstances, a general pervasive mood of unhappiness or depression, or a tendency to develop physical symptoms or fears associated with personal or school problems. Now, in Pablo's case, Pablo had um, some inappropriate types of behaviors, right? Um, under that he felt under normal circumstances. And this manifested itself whereby he would run out of the building or and or um, he was aggressively touching staff. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, and in this particular case, sorry, that's my phone going off. I'm so sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I'll just put that on silence. Um, in this case, um, Pablo had, in a, I think, a one-month period, run out of the building three times. Mm-hmm. And in one case, got far away from the school, mm-hmm. um, to the point where the school called 211, you know, the emergency services. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine this is not only um, worrisome for a school team, but also worrisome for the parent. And um, in this case, um, the parents called me because they knew something wasn't working in the program. You know, for for Pablo to be running out of, the building, out of the building, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's just never a good thing. And yep. so, um, you know, the parents called me, retained me, um, and we went into this IEP meeting uh, where, you know, our primary request was, let's get. Pablo, a, a, a one-to-one. I also forgot another fact, Jen, and why sure. the parents also called me. And that is because Pablo was being removed from the mainstream. Pablo mm-hmm. was a bright young 
young man, uh, very capable of um, participating um, from an academic perspective mm-hmm. in the mainstream. So it was only his behavior that was keeping him out of the mainstream. And so the the, the thought of the parents was, you know, if he had a one-to-one aide, a one-to-one paraprofessional, an adult who was meant um, just to um, be with Pablo so that if Pablo became dysregulated or frustrated, there could be some sort of system in place where this person would help Pablo, make sure Pablo was safe, wasn't going to be running out of the building. Um, And as you can imagine, for a student who's running out of the building, that's a lot to manage for just the one teacher teaching a class of 24, 25 kids, whatever it is. Um, And so that was what we led ourselves um, to do going into this IEP team. And Julie, just um, because I, I want to make sure that that um, the listeners have a picture of this, the the reality is he was also being suspended, you know, for a couple of days at a time here and there pretty regularly at this point, right? Right. In fact, um, you know, the parents had been told that if Pablo runs out of the building again or touches um, a staff again, that there would be far more severe um, disciplinary consequences and at, and and perhaps even being expelled. And okay. so, you know, that was, again, Jen, thanks for reminding me of that fact, another reason why the parents called me. Okay. So tell us about the IEP meeting. Well, at the IEP team meeting, um, it was very interesting um, because we got to this meeting and there were um, three outside professionals who were nowhere to be found on Pablo's IEP, okay? Two of these professionals were um, board-certified behavior analysts, and another professional was an outside psychologist who they described as their consultant. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were not listed as a service or support on the IEP, which you had reviewed before going into the, the meeting, right? Right. And so, you know, I come I had come to learn that these folks had been involved in Pablo's program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we when we asked for, uh, you know, a one to one or my goodness, can we look at the, um, you know, the behavior plan that is in place, whether or not that's appropriate, we were assured by these three professionals, that they were on top of it, they were going to get a little bit more involved and th- than they previously had been, which I didn't mm-hmm. know what, what they had been doing because it wasn't mm-hmm. on the IEP. And mm-hmm. all would be well with the world. We had three incredibly professional, capable folks who were going to get more involved and, and they assured us everything would be fine. Now, while we're in the meeting, one of the uh, professionals beeper goes off and has to leave the meeting. We would find out later that was because Pablo was being aggressive with staff. Uh Now, as soon as that one, the consultant um, who to this day, I'm not sure what I'm not really quite sure of that person's role, but it wasn't really something that they could articulate very well for me. (laughs) Um, But then as soon as that consultant left the room, in comes the principal, who was not happy um, <laughs> upon learning that Pablo again had put his hands on staff. 
Now, the principal had not been invited to the meeting, Jen. And you know when mm-hmm. another person who was not on the invitation comes into the meeting, they have to say, you know, you know, is it okay with you if they're here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the, the director of special education said, well, you know, uh, you know, Mrs. So-and-so wasn't invited to the meeting. Are you okay with her being here? And we, we said, uh, absolutely. Um, and the principal sat down, um, was very, very upset and basically looked at the director of special education and said, what are you going to be doing? Because we cannot have Pablo continue to um, be putting staff at risk in the school and running out of the building. What, what's the plan? And, you know, I personally looked at the principal and, and, and then looked back at the director of special education and I said, well, what is the plan? <laughs> so, um, you know, and again, they assured us that, um, and, and in this meeting, by the way, um, Jen, the principal did say, if Pablo has to get um, a disciplinary matter again and be suspended for another three days, this will trigger, um, you know, perhaps expulsion. And, mm-hmm. you know, that seemed rather threatening. Um, mm-hmm. She also said, we will have to call the police. And call two one one again, and of course yeah. this is you know, very upsetting to the parents. Upsetting, especially when juxtaposed with the beginning of the meeting where you're being assured that everything's fine and they've got it all under control. Right. Um, right. right. Yeah. So, so you know what, what happens at the end of the meeting? So basically, we were assured that these three professionals were going to um, ramp up their involvement and um, you know do uh, look at the function of the behavior and, and really sort of tweak this, uh, this plan. Now, in the meanwhile, what we found out was the person who was called out of the meeting, you know, was called out for Pablo, as, as I think I intimated before. But Pablo was, you know, after the meeting, uh, we went across the hallway where Pablo was, and Pablo was incredibly dysregulated. And, and in fact, um, you know, while we said, you know, we didn't want him to be sent home. They and ultimately um, had him go home with his parent because he was so upset. Now, I will say the other thing that I did at the IEP team meeting is I got the duration and frequency of the involvement on, of these three professionals on the IEP um, because they hadn't been on the IEP before. I so it was actually it. documented what they were doing, it, it right? Was documented. So, Jen, let's talk about the law. Yeah, let's talk about the law. And and I want to say a few things leading up to our breakdown of the law on this. First, um, you know, it's not common when parents are at a meeting with an advocate and certainly not with an attorney that the school team has not already had a meeting where they sort of talk about what's expected and the the surprise entrance of the principal. Um, who, you know, sometimes principals attend IEP meetings, but in many districts, principals do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the principal showing up in this meeting uninvited and sort of angry uh, at the situation and and calling out the special education uh, personnel and administration on the fact that this child, this was not a tenable situation for Pablo. Um, it's not the norm. <laughs> I mean, usually they have their ducks pretty well in a row about their position when, when it gets to the point where a parent either has an outside professional representing them in the meeting or, or advising them in the meeting or where a parent is, you know, making it very clear that they are advocating strongly for their child's rights. And, and so that fact is not the norm where you have sort of one part of the school team, 
you know, pointing to the other part of the school team saying, we don't think you're doing enough for this student or, or, you know, or your failure to provide the supports is not allowing us to do our job in this other part of the building. So that's not the norm. So, you know, it's Julie and I um, share these um, examples because something not typical (laughs) happened and we thought it was important and instructive for our listeners. So, you know, that's not the norm, right, Julie? Right, right. And, you know, Jen, I might have jumped the gun on the law a little bit here because I'm remembering another fact. And the other fact is, is that this parent did not want Pablo. The parents did not want Pablo to be outplaced to a private special education school. Um, Mm -hmm. They desperately wanted Pablo to stay in the district and be reunited in the mainstream, given the supports that he required to to successfully participate in his education. And I often wonder when, you know, the principal who clearly had her uh, an agenda that she thought would be in the best interest of the school and Pablo, um, why she hadn't been invited to the meeting and why she sort of um, unannounced through this, you know, this gauntlet down on the table to say, this ain't working, what y'all going to do, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, and that usually... When teams aren't on the same page with each other, there are members within a team who aren't on the same page. It's usually because they fear that this student is going to end up costing them somehow resources that they don't have or money that they don't have. And so, you know, I just wanted to point that out there, that that was one of the facts, that we made it very clear in the IEPT meeting, the Individualized Education Program meeting, we did not want Pablo outside. Right. But you were asking for a one-to-one, which is, it comes with a price tag. Um, a right. one-to-one means this: the school has to budget for another employee um, to sure. to be with the student. And, and while it's not anything like the cost of an outplacement, it's still, you know, significant money. And, um, and so that's probably why you got some resistance on that. And so, you know, this is actually the perfect segue to the law, Julie, because right. the, the number one thing that is implicated here under the, the IDEA is um, something called the least restrictive environment provision, which is the cornerstone of the IDEA's um, strong mandate that students who have disabilities should be educated with their non-disabled peers in a program as similar as uh, as possible and as appropriate to the program they would receive if they did not have a disability. And so the fact that Pablo was being removed from his mainstream environment, where, as you said, he was more than academically capable of um, attending uh, because of his behavior and without pushing in the supports and services that he needed before removing him from that environment as the law requires Mm -hmm. is a violation of that provision. Um, And your request that he have a one-to-one is exactly what, you know, was the right thing to do, which is to say, how do we keep him in the mainstream um, without having him miss out on his entitlement to his education, but also address the, the behavior. And, you know, from the fact pattern you've given in many, many cases that I have that are similar, you know, there are people who are properly trained and they can be trained um, to be implemented by a paraprofessional if, you know, if it's appropriate for the child, that's where you bring in outside experts to help you, who can um, be aware of de-escalation strategies. So if right. if a person starts to, a paraprofessional or some other one-to-one support person understands Pablo and has been given training and and um, information about him and 
what to recognize as maybe the triggers or a sign that maybe he's about to become dysregulated um, so that that person can either, you know, and this is a, something the team's supposed to decide together, you know, is the plan to um, have the student um, be given, you know, a, a little bit of a, a, a prompt by the parrot, you know, like, you know, mm -hmm. Pablo, you're, you're getting upset. Do you want a break? You know, right. um, or something that could be more, um, significant than that, where maybe there is a break taken where, you know, the Paris says, Hey, let's go for a walk or something. Right. Um, uh, you know, it could be as simple as, you know, giving the student a, a glass of water. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be high level stuff, but if you can work together with the professionals and, and the parents and start to understand, you know, there are de-escalation strategies and that's what we want because, you know, it's really not fair to Pablo. It's not fair to Pablo that Pablo had experienced numerous times where his peers and his teachers saw him completely fall apart, become dysregulated, lose his cool, um, and, you know, kind of make a scene and run out of the building and all those things, you know, when we know that there are ways to prevent that from happening and, and right. it's the obligation of the school to put them in place. Right. And, you know, Jen, sometimes I feel like I've, I've, I, I, I can't believe that I forget such important things to say in this back pattern. What is wrong with me? I don't know. Okay. But We're human. Here's the other thing. Okay. Um, the fact is that we asked for Pablo to be put back in the mainstream with this one-to-one -one who could be trained by these three outside folks, right? Which that had to be costing the district something, right? Right. Um, and that was denied, Jen. Yeah. It was denied. I forgot to say that. That's I'm okay. I'm so sorry, listeners. That's it. <laughs> Hey, you know what? We, we, we're still talking and hopefully they're still listening. So it's okay. It's not fatal. And, oh. and you know what? That's okay. That's, that's part of life. And that's, that's one of the things that we want everyone to understand. We're, we're talking about how to fix things in hindsight. You know, we don't have all the answers either. And there are many times where we look back and we say, uh, you know, I wish I had done this a little differently. And in this particular case, Julie had asked for the one-to-one. -one. They had been denied that, that request for that support. And, um, you know, uh, we're going to, you know, get to the verdict in a bit, but right. the tension between regular education and special education in public schools behind the scenes is something parents don't always appreciate as happening. So my guess is that if this case got to a point where we were really, you know, hearing from all of the people in the building and, you know, having them testify, which is our goal not to do. Our goal is to let people be educators and let parents be parents and let kids be kids and not have this become a, you know, adversarial process. That's mm -hmm. always our goal. But it, my guess is if we got to that level, having participated in a number of hearings where you get to that level of information about what's happening behind the scenes, my guess is the principal was good and ticked off mm -hmm. that Pablo was not following the rules of the school, that teachers were probably complaining to her about the, the physical aggression and their rights as teachers to be in a safe um, employment situation, mm -hmm. um, that, that she was probably getting complaints from other parents. She was probably, you know, wanting to be able to rule her school the way that one wants to be able to do so with, you know, discipline being enforced when it's necessary. Um, and when she was going to what in many school districts is actually a higher level of um, authority, which is the director of special education often is a district-wide supervisor as opposed to being a building level supervisor. Um, and she was, you know, behind the scenes starting to try to enforce this discipline with Pablo. She was probably being told by the director or the special ed teacher or the various people in the special education personnel department 
you can't do X, Y, and Z to Pablo because Pablo has rights, which we're going to get to now as we're covering the law, because right. um, this is this is a tension that exists where a lot of regular education regular regular educators get frustrated that their teachers and the students aren't being given the level of support and training and services from the special ed department that the the team feels is necessary, and they're behind the scenes kind of mad at each other about it. Yeah. And so, you know, as I said in the meeting, the principal said, look, if Pablo runs out of the building again, or if Pablo puts his hands on staff again, um, I am going to expo- uh, not uh, suspend him. And at, by this time, Jen, Pablo had already been suspended about seven days. So if mm-hmm. he got suspended for another three days, that would have gone past the 10 day maximum um, suspension, um, rule. And why don't you talk about that before we go on? So this is a little tricky, but it's uh, very important for people to understand. A student who has an IEP has, um, some protections under the federal law from, um, being disciplined for what is in essence a manifestation of their disability. Okay. So, you know, there are students who are not physically able to control parts of their body. There are students who are not, um, whose brain uh, impacts their behavior uh, in such a way that their behaviors are not consistent with the code of conduct of the school. And what we don't want to do and what Congress has insisted we not do is punish students through the usual, usual disciplinary, um, channels for behavior that is, uh, clearly part of their disability, right? right. Um, and and so uh, there's a whole process that's outlined in the law about this to make sure the students who have disabilities um, have those protections. And in fact, the protections are strong enough that even students who don't have an IEP but are suspected of having a disability enjoy the same protections with a few exceptions. Um, and so, and there are obviously some exceptions to even the protections that students with disabilities have because we need to keep our schools safe so even if you have an IEP and even if the um, misconduct at issue is a manifestation of your child's disability, then, um, you know, you can still be removed from the school for things like, you know, drugs, weapons, bodily injury, you know, there are exceptions. But right. generally speaking, students who have IEPs do have stronger protection from being disciplined in the usual fashion. And there's a process outlined in the law for it. The law is that if a student is going to be removed, so suspended, for more than 10 consecutive school days, then um, that triggers the obligation of the school to convene a manifestation determination IEP meeting to figure out whether or not the misconduct alleged to have occurred was in fact a manifestation of the child's disability or not. And then the answer to that question results in, uh, and and often there's not a consensus about it. Sometimes the school says, no, it's not a manifestation of of the disability. And the parent says, yes, it is. And then you have, you know, all of the rights that parents have under the due process, um, protections of the statute, the parent has a right to challenge that decision, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But here's what's tricky about this case with Pablo and with this particular situation in terms of what the law says. There are cases, we have many students who have this pattern where they don't go as far, the school district doesn't go as far as an expulsion hearing or even a suspension for more than 10 consecutive school days, but the kid gets a two-day suspension here 
a three-day suspension here, a five-day suspension there, a two-day suspension here, you know. And over the course of the school year, this kid's missing out on a ton of school without ever having a manifestation determination. And there are cases out there that say, no, you can't do that. You can't just keep removing a kid from the you know mainstream environment. It, it, in essence, doing what we would call a de facto, which is Latin for, you know, as a matter of fact, um, a de facto expulsion from school simply because you don't ever trigger the 10 days. So a pattern like this is certainly worrisome and should have triggered a number of things, um, including a manifestation determination, which is um, that meeting that takes a look at the child's IEP. Does the student's IEP have the proper positive behavioral supports? Is the IEP being implemented? Because sometimes, you know, let's just say hypothetically, you had a one-to-one for Pablo and the one-to-one was out on leave and they hadn't provided a substitute. Well, in a case like that, the law would say we can't go forward and, you know, disciplining the student for something that is happening because this IEP is not being implemented. So it's, it's complex. This could be a whole law school course. Um, in some cases it is, um, the protections under the IDEA for, um, students with disabilities surrounding discipline. Um, but certainly what we want both legally and factually is for our schools to be safe places for all students and that students who have disabilities should not be punished because they have a disability. Right. And so in the case of this principal who had said to the parent, um, you know, prior uh, that, you know, if Pablo does something else again, it's going to force me to expel him. Well, again, Jen, uh, it would have gone past the 10 days. It it would have automatically triggered a manifestation determination IEP team meeting, which of course the principal at that time didn't tell the parent, which is one of the things that got her upset and why she called me. But I like to explain it this way. We can't discriminate against students for having a disability. So therefore, if the behavior is actually a res- caused as a result of their disability, imagine if we discipline that student in the same way that would we, we would discipline a student who doesn't have a disability. That mm-hmm. could be devastating to many students for a variety of reasons, discriminatory. So this manifestation determination and whether or not you get expelled or you don't exp- get expelled based on whether or not it really was a manifestation of your disability is often highly misunderstood. Um, it can be confusing to parents. I, I know when I first heard the term manifestation determination, I'm like, what does that mean? You know, it, yeah. even though you take those two words separately and you you can identify and know what the definition is, it's one of those words that you, you juxtapose these words together and the term just makes your head spin go, what does that mean? Um, so anyway, uh, that yeah, is, it's, it's very confusing and, and it's, you know, and, and misunderstood, not just by right. parents, but by educators. I've, mm-hmm. I've had, um, IEP meetings where, you know, we've been g- given notice. This is a manifestation determination. I know the parents hired me in many cases because the next step will be an expulsion hearing. I know walking into the meeting that the school district is likely to say, this is not a manifestation of the child's disability because they do intend to proceed with the discipline and not to, um, to proceed down the road of saying, let's revise the IEP as opposed to 
let's proceed with the discipline. And um, we go into these meetings and I've heard the administrator report, you know, to the team, are, we have to determine if this student knows the difference between right and wrong. Well, that's nowhere in the statute. Okay. That's, that's a determination that's usually used in criminal context and courts in terms of competency and whether or not somebody has the ability to have, you know, formed the intent of a crime. And somehow, you know, like many of the, the urban legends that happen in, in special education matters, somehow, somewhere, somebody got the idea that this is the standard. It's not. Um, but it's very commonly misunderstood and it's fraught with problems. I mean, this is a, a student who's up for an expulsion is a real problem because not only will that student possibly have this on, on their record, so to speak, um, their educational record, um, but they may in some circumstances be um, out of school, which for even if, even if uh, as the law provides, that student would receive an, an interim program. Uh, they would be receiving a program from the school district um, elsewhere, um, in the home, in the library, et cetera. They're probably out of school if they get expelled. And for students who have disabilities, that can be really problematic and the student of their social interactions. It often exacerbates a problem that the student is experiencing as a result of their disability. So our hope is always to avoid these kinds of removals and to and the and Congress, in fact, says in the statute that zero tolerance policies in discipline for students with disabilities are not you know what we envision to have considered when you go through these manifestation determinations because you know there is no such thing as zero tolerance for a disability. I mean it's it's you know the example I try to give people because they're usually more nuanced, like it is with Pablo. How do you know where the um, behavior of the student? begins and ends and where the disability starts and ends. You know, it's hard to always tease out whether in fact it's a manifestation of the d disability. But uh, the example I give that's pretty clear cut is let's imagine a student who had Tourette's, okay, which is a disorder that sometimes results in a student shouting out profanities or not being able to, re to regulate um, their, um, their verbal interactions. You know, you're, are you going to punish a kid and expel a kid who has Tourette's um, for shouting out a, a profanity in class because your school rules say that you're not supposed to swear in class. I mean, that's just silly. You wouldn't want to do that, right? So if you take that concept and you extrapolate it out against some of these a, a little bit harder to understand, but are clearly, you know, for Pablo, we know, and you knew that from, from the evaluations, from his history, that dysregulation is going to happen based on his disability. And that if he's not de-escalated, it's going to get worse. So why punish him for it as opposed to providing him the supports he needs um, in order to learn and to learn to cope? I mean, that was part of what he, why he's receiving services is to focus on those coping strategies. Right. So let, let's do the rewind. And you know, what could have been done differently? So things didn't have to get quite to the extreme that they did, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, one thing would be that, um, you know, the second that Pablo ran out of the building for the very first time, it should have triggered an IEP team, an individualized education program team meeting. Mm -hmm. um, because let's face it, when you're running out of a building, the what ifs um, are so great that you know you want to immediately convene and say, do we have the right supports in place um, right. for, to avoid um, Pablo from getting to the point where he feels he has to escape? Um, so school, and Julie, that that point, I feel like it can't be made enough times. When I get a phone call or I'm meeting with a prospective client, and they're going through the the history of what has led them to call me, all right. Well, usually, it's 
a history of some concerns, and then those concerns bubbled up into a crisis because most people aren't going to go hire a lawyer um, for their child's education unless things are pretty bad, right? Mm. So it's usually things are, you know, sort of this red flag, red flag, red flag, concern, 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 you know, over years, and then, whoa, everything came off the tracks, right? And, and it's now a crisis. It's now a big issue. Mm-hmm. And when I go through the facts of the big issue, most of the time, it's not something that overnight happened. Most of the time, they're, they're, so in a case like this, where they'd be telling me the story, I'd say, and so, in, you know, the parents might say, so in September, um, you know, a few weeks into school, uh, he ran out of the school building and I got a phone call that they called 211 because he ran out of the building. Okay. My, my question is now going to be, did they convene an IEP team meeting? Mm-hmm. No, no, we didn't have an IEP meeting then. Okay, keep going. And then they'll go on. I So then uh, the second week in October, I got another call that he um, punched, uh, you know, a, a, a teacher. Um, not hard. It was just sort of a push. But, you know, I got a call and they said, you need to come get him. Okay, did, did you have an IEP meeting at that point? No, no. Okay, keep going. I mean, there, this, is, this is a pattern that is so frustrating. I had a hearing officer once in a case where the 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 legal dispute was so complex that I'm not even going to bring it up right now because it was such a complex legal matter. But the facts were that the student had a tremendous number of incidents that had occurred that were worrisome both to the parent and the school over the course of an entire school year. And the first time the IEP team meeting convened was in February of that school year. And, you know, all of this testimony comes out about who knew what, when, and, you know, did this incident occur and who did it? And was it really as bad as, as, as it seems like it was all that testimony came about, but the hearing officer distilled it down to the best phrase that I, you know, top five phrases in a hearing decision I've ever gotten, which was, I, I love this line. It's not just the obligation of the team members to notice that something's going wrong. It's their obligation to do something about it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I love that because, all, you know, every single witness that, that took the stand, and there was a lot of disagreement in this case about the facts, but every single one of them had this, pe- you know, the first week in school, we were concerned because this happened and then this happened. And it was just this demonization of the student and the parents, frankly, in that case, of how awful things had been all year. And every single one of them, I said, when was the first IEP meeting you convened? February, you know, September, October, November, December, January, February, February, that's six months into a school year on the second half of the school year. That's not what the uh, the IDA envisions. We should be convening these meetings when red flags appear. And in fairness to many teachers, okay, uh, they may have brought to the administration's attention that yeah. they want an, an IEP team meeting, and they may have been told no. You're right? 100% right about right? that, Julie. So, Thank you for you pointing know, that out. Teachers have to feel supported. Right yeah. by the administration, and so you know. Having said that, um, what else could have been done? Well, well you know, yep. Go ahead, I, I was going to say, you know, they could have done a functional behavior assessment, right? Yeah. Um, now, in this case, uh, you know, this this team of three consultants had insisted that they um, had already done one. But to my point was, well, okay, but if you did one, it's not working. Whatever the hypothesis of the function function of the behavior is and whatever appropriate behavioral support you think should be addressing it, that ain't working. It isn't working. And, you know, the the whole point of of an FBA is to do a behavior intervention plan that works, right, to address the behavior. So. Clearly it wasn't. Um, If it was there, it wasn't working. The other thing, again, Julie, that could have been done differently, and again, with hindsight, 
the one-to-one should have been approved. You know, it's right. it went when a parent, you know, it's tough when, when students get older into the middle and high school years, you know, that consideration of a team of giving a student a one-to-one is a tough one for everybody because um, Pablo is a very capable kid. He's very aware of what his peers think about him. A lot of kids when they get to adolescence don't want to be seen as different in any way or needing more services or supports. But, you know, I would argue, and, and certainly the parents came to the viewpoint that it was much more stigmatizing to Pablo to be seen as a kid who's running out of the building and, you know, um, having, you know, to have all the adults descend on him to keep him safe and and others safe, that's much more stigmatizing than maybe having a person who's well-trained to be right. near him or at the back of the classroom and, you know, could be just presented as a classroom aide, um, helping him to avoid that, that kind of behavior. So, um, you know, they should have, they should have given that support because he's entitled to be in the mainstream. Right. And, you know, this leads us to the verdict and what actually happened to Pablo? Well, I'm going to tell you, okay. He, um, you know, as I recall, as I said, there was this team of three consultants, right. Who were going to get busy and, and fix everything. Right. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for Pablo, um, it couldn't happen quickly enough. And Pablo continued to have some aggressive outbursts toward student to toward adults. And I don't really ever know what happened behind the scenes, but all I know is it very quickly, it became the recommendation of the school team to outplace him. If I had to take a guess, it could have been that the principal said the administration, either this could goes or I go like, who knows? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this, this person had had it right. Like I need to keep my staffs, my staff safe. You said this team was going to fix it. It keeps happening. Something's got to change. And by that point, Jen, even though the parent didn't want Pablo, the parents didn't want Pablo outplaced by this time, they sort of were like, you know what? This maybe this is going to be the best thing for Pablo, and so that we can teach him emotional, you know, emotional regulation. Teach the this this private special education staff can work more intensively with him, and teach him the skills he needs so we can bring Pablo back eventually to the to the uh, regular education school and be successful. Um, so by the time the school you know uh, uh, recommended it. The parents were actually on board. In agreement. And just for, for those who don't know, an outplacement is where the school yeah. district recommends that the student attend a different school, typically a special education program that is certified by that state to provide services and support. Sometimes the parents will actually choose to make that placement themselves and then seek funding from the district or the support of the district um, if they feel that the program isn't working for their child. And I, and I understand it's a tough one because you know he has a right to be in the mainstream. He has a right to be in his community school. He has all those rights, but sometimes it gets to a point of no return where, you know, I've had so many parents who've said to me in a fact pattern like this, you know, he's become a social pariah. You know, none of the kids want to play with him or invite him over or, you know, interact with him because he's constantly in trouble and they know it and they see it and they don't want to be friends with him. And so it becomes sort of a snowballing um, effect where the the student, um, because they didn't have the right supports, the student, um, you know, unravels and then the that adds to a social problem. And it just becomes unfortunate. And again, had he been given the supports and, and the services early on, it may not have gotten to that point. But this is to say that, you know, the verdict was an, an outplacement here, but the verdict is always behavior and discipline referrals are red flags that something's not right with the program. Absolutely. And so I do hope that 
um, everyone who's listening has um, taken away some golden nuggets of what not to do. Um, should you know you be familiar with a, a, a similar case? And on that note, we will close the file on Pablo and the principal. Take care. Bye-bye. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed. <laughs>